Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we have the righteousness of Christ, that we're dressed in His righteousness alone, that our filthy garments have been removed. Christ voluntarily took them upon Himself, took the punishment that we deserve, and in exchange has given us His own perfection. What a wonderful truth. And we stand now on the solid rock of Christ and the Gospel, and now we come this morning, and our desire is yet again to understand Your Word, to have clarity on the topic of evangelism, that You might help us to be faithful witnesses for Christ. That's our longing, Lord. We know there are people in our culture, in our world, in our city, dying without Christ, dying without the Gospel. And our hope and desire is to bring the Gospel to bear upon this place for Your glory. So help us, Father. Equip us. Train us. Use us, we pray. Amen. Well, Alright, this morning in our continuation of our study of the spiritual disciplines, our theme, of course, is the topic of evangelism. Evangelism, we've been considering this for several weeks now. Uh, this is the fourth spiritual discipline that we are considering. Uh, the first three were Bible intake, prayer, and worship. And now we are in, I think, part six or seven of evangelism. It's amazing how long it's going to take me to get through two pages of notes, isn't it? Uh, but pray for me. Maybe one day I'll get a little quicker and we can actually get through studies faster, but as of now, that's not the case. So we're on uh, the topic of evangelism. I told you it's going to come to you in two parts. Part one was the basics of evangelism, the who, what, when, where, why, how, right? We considered that every Christian is called to do evangelism everywhere, all the time, and evangelism is not merely living a godly life or our testimony, it's proclaiming the gospel, Right? Uh, the gospel, by the way, the word is euangelion. It means good news. And the gospel then is the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based upon His redeeming work on the cross alone. So that's the gospel. And now we are in part two of our study of evangelism. And I've entitled this one, The Essential Components of a Gospel Message and Outline for Evangelism. And so basically, in this lesson, what I'm doing is presenting to you an outline of things to say as you seek to communicate the gospel to the non-believer. And I've given you a five-point outline. Who remembers those five points? Caitlin does. What are they? God, man, Christ, response, and promises and warnings. Promises and warnings, right? God, we start with the character of God, right? Man is ignorant of who God is. And because of that, we need to tell man about who God is. We need to tell him about the character of God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God's standard is perfection. And He will not by any means leave the guilty unpunished. Right? And then we talked about the character of man. Man is a sinner. He's a sinner by nature, by birth, by choice. He's actually broken the law of God. And he has no ability or capability within himself to please God, love God, or come to God apart from grace. And so, that's where we start. The sinner needs to see himself as a man under the wrath of God. A person under the wrath of God. Not until then will the sinner long to be delivered from the plight that he's in if he doesn't first understand his plight. So we need to get the sinner to see that he is under condemnation. And we do that by talking about God and man. But then we get to the good news. And the good news is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We talked about Christ over a period of two weeks. We considered His person. And there are two distinct natures that Jesus possesses. What are those two natures? He's fully God and 
the way man, right? Not 50% God and 50% man, but 100% God, 100% man. Two distinct, complete natures united together in one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then we talked about His work, what He has accomplished on our behalf to save us. And we considered that He lived a perfect life, satisfying the law. He died a substitutionary death, satisfying God's wrath. He rose again, proving that He was God. He's ascended on high as Lord. He's coming again to judge the world and culminate history. So that's who Christ is and what Christ has done. But then last week, we began to consider our response. This is what God, who God is. This is who you are. This is what Christ has done. Now, there's something you must do in response to the Gospel to be saved. To receive the gift of God's grace. And what is it that we have to do to be saved? Repent and believe, right? Repent and believe. Remember, Matthew 18.3, Jesus says, unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does it mean again to be converted? To turn, right? The word strepho means to turn. So to get into the kingdom, we have to turn. We have to turn from something and turn... Say that again. To Christ, right? Turn from sin to Christ. You can't turn from sin without turning to Christ. You can't turn to Christ without turning from sin, right? Uh, saving faith is a repentant faith, and it is a believing repentance. We turn from sin, we turn to Christ. Or to put it another way, we submit to Christ as Lord, and we trust Him as Savior. Submit to Him as Lord, trust Him as Savior. And we spent most of our time last week looking at repentance I want to briefly look at faith for a moment before we move on this morning. Uh, in Acts 3.19, though, Peter says, Repent, turn back, your sins will be blotted out. Right? So for your sins to be blotted out, what do you have to do? Repent. Right? There are some that say repentance is not necessary for salvation. All you have to do is believe. And then, when you show them the plethora of verses that unequivocally tell us that repentance is required for forgiveness, then they redefine repentance. They say, well, what repentance means is to turn from our unbelief and believe. That's all it means. Circular reasoning. Circular reasoning. It's absolutely unbiblical. All throughout Scripture, there's a clear call for us to abandon sin and turn to God in faith. That's the response that God requires. Uh, Mark 1.15, what was Jesus' first message? The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled what? Repent and believe the gospel. The first words out of His mouth, repent. Repent. Same thing in Acts 20.21. Paul summarizes his preaching in this way. He says, I preach repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's message. And then even Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thought, right, repent, and let him return to the Lord, faith, and God will have mercy upon him. You want mercy, you've got to turn from sin, and turn to God. Repent and believe. But now this morning I want to talk a little bit more about faith before we move on to the final point of the outline. Uh, faith, who can remember how we defined faith last week? You didn't write that one down. How did we define faith? Is it just intellectual agreement with gospel truth? I just intellectually agree? Is that enough? It's once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you go out and live it and have faith that God will provide for you or have faith that He will... When you go out to evangelize, souls will come to 
Sure. So, so faith is lived out, right? It's something that's not just agreement. Faith, the word pistuo or pistos, it means persuasion and thus commitment. Okay, So faith is committing ourselves to Christ and it's trusting in Christ alone to save us, not ourselves. What if I only trust, what if I trust in Christ some and I trust in my baptism? Is that saving faith? All is faith plus works. Faith plus works, right? Saving faith is submission to Christ as Lord. Submission to Christ as Lord, right? And trusting in Him alone, nothing else. Paul tells the Galatians, I'm telling you, if any of you get circumcision, trusting in that to save you, Christ is of no benefit to you. You're severed from Christ, fallen from grace, and obligated to keep the whole law. If you trust in anything outside of Christ, you've got to be perfect. And guess what? You can't be perfect. And therefore, if you don't trust in Christ, you're condemned. So it must be Christ alone. In Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What does that say? We know that passage, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, not a result of works, so that no man shall boast. Right? Salvation is by faith alone. Sola fide. Faith in Christ alone. And then John 3.16. We're all familiar with that. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, so that what? Whoever believes in Him. Right? Salvation is by faith. But faith, of course, entails repentance. Repentant faith. But now this morning we come to the fifth point in our outline, and that is promises and warnings. And finally, after a long, long time, we're going to finish this outline up today. So promises and warnings. Uh, The Gospel, Paul Washer says, has many great Gospel promises, but also many great warnings. We can't just give promises, we also have to issue the warnings of the Gospel, if we're going to be faithful to the true Gospel. So let's start by considering the promises. What are some of the promises that God makes to those who are going to repent and believe? What are the promises that the Gospel makes to us? Have eternal life with Christ. Eternal life? Okay. What else? The good works that He starts So preservation. God's going to finish the work. He's not going to just leave you. He's not going to start it, leave you, and let you lose your salvation, is it? John MacArthur says if you could lose your salvation, you would. Right? Praise God, we can't because God keeps us. So the work He began in us, He brings it to perfection. What else? What are some other promises that the Gospel makes to us? God's working everything for good. To those who what? Love Him. Right? Not for those who hate Him. Things aren't working for good to those who hate Him, but for those who love Him, they are. Okay? So God's good, sweet providence. What else? Father. God becomes our Father. But wait a minute, isn't He our Father before we're converted? No. But aren't we all God's children? No. No. Right? No. Who, who, who is the Father of the unbeliever? Satan. The devil. Right? Now you see why they killed Jesus. He said things like that. He said, you're of your Father of the devil. He wasn't this all-loving teddy bear, was He? What are some other promises? Think about our sin. What is the gospel promise if we repent and believe? It will be cast away. Sins are cast away. Forgiveness. All of your lawless deeds wiped out, gone. That's the promise, right? 
So let me kind of summarize kind of a uh, comprehensive, uh, just all of the promises that the Gospel makes. And then I'm going to focus on a few that are really emphasized in the preaching of the New Testament. But first of all, we have regeneration. Regeneration. Now this is actually something that actually takes place to you before you become a Christian that makes you become a Christian. Uh, we say regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration causes faith. God makes us new and thus enables us to believe. But it's still a promise that the Christian is one who has been born again, right? Born from above. And so in regeneration, God promises us a new heart. A new heart. New desires. New affections. But then you have what we could call justification. Justification. That's where God gives us a new verdict. A new judicial standing before Him. We were guilty, but now we're what? Innocent. Righteous. Not guilty. Then there's reconciliation. Reconciliation is where God gives us a new relationship with Himself. We go from being God's enemies to being God's friends. Then there is adoption. Adoption. There we get a new father. We go from being the children of the devil to being the children of God. But then there's sanctification. God promises that if you repent and believe the Gospel, He will sanctify you. In sanctification, we get a new life or a new holiness. Where at once we lived in sin and were enslaved to sin, if we become Christians, God frees us from sin and causes us to become more holy. And then there's what Sean touched on a minute ago, what we could call preservation or eternal security, where God gives us a new hope. We don't have to fear falling away. We don't have to fear condemnation because God preserves us. God keeps us. And then finally, what we could call glorification. Glorification. And there God gives us a new body and a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. So, in a word, the promise of the Gospel is that God is making everything new. Everything new. And the Christian is the first fruit of that newness. So, regeneration, justification, sanctification, reconciliation, adoption, glorification, and so on. But the th there are three promises in particular that the New Testament preaching focuses on. And that is forgiveness, justification, and the gift of the Spirit. So what I want to do is I want to examine a few uh, passages in the book of Acts that, that show us what the apostles emphasized. So go to the book of Acts and go to chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you want to preach the Gospel faithfully and effectively... Emulating the apostles is a very wise thing to do. They turned the world upside down. So I think we should do what they did. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Verse 14. So Peter is at Pentecost in Jerusalem. The Spirit of God has come upon the New Testament church. And there's been tongues and all kind of crazy signs. So the crowds have been drawn to Peter, and Peter gets up to explain it. Verse 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice. I love that. Peter's not in Starbucks with his skinny jeans on having a nice conversation. Peter is standing up, raising his voice. He's open-air preaching. Peter is preaching outdoors in public to a massive crowd. And notice what he says. He declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. Look at the boldness of this guy. 
This is the same Peter who not long before this was doing what? Denying Christ. Running away. Afraid. Now he takes his stand and says, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Listen to me. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Who gets drunk at 9 a.m.? Well, I know some people, but ordinarily most people don't. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on and he quotes Joel 2 and and shows that this is the fulfillment of that. But then after doing that, verse 22, he starts to preach the Gospel. Verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. So notice that. He starts with Jesus. Who is it that Peter preaches? Jesus. Christ. He's a Christocentric preacher. So if we're going to share the Gospel effectively, Jesus needs to be the heart of our message, right? Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, so he preaches the sovereignty of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. You see that? There's sin, isn't it? Peter is preaching about their sin. They murdered the Son of God. Which commandment is that? The sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder, right? So Peter is using the law in evangelism with precision to expose sin. Right? We talked about that. So you've murdered the Messiah, he says. And now he's preaching the cross, isn't he? The death of Jesus. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of God this man, put him to death. Verse 24, but God raised him up again. What's that? Resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, now he's going to quote from Psalm 16. He's a biblical preacher. David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In other words, the Messiah was going to be resurrected. David spoke as a prophet. Go to verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had swore to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So now he emphasizes the fact that Jesus' death is historical. There are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. How many eyewitnesses were there? Does anyone know? Over 500, 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to 500 brethren at once. 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. This is not like these crazy religions that start with one man in a cave having a vision with no one to authenticate it. Islam, Mormonism, and so forth. This is a public reality. This is an authenticated reality. Jesus rose from the dead and we have over 500 eyewitnesses. That is enough to convince any law court. I mean, if you're in a court of law, 500 people come in and said, we saw this, that's settled. The resurrection is settled. Not to mention that they also had 
many reasons to deny the resurrection. If they're just making this up. You know, what the Muslims do is different from what the apostles did. The Muslims drive planes into buildings for something they think is true, right? The apostles, however, would have been giving their lives for something they knew was not true, if indeed it wasn't true. But we know it is. Jesus was raised. So back to verse 33 now. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth what you both see and hear. So here He's preaching the exaltation. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is Lord. And He promises you the Spirit. Then verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Did Peter preach, make Jesus your Lord? No, what did he preach? Jesus is your Lord. That's what he preached. Jesus is Lord. We need to preach that. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Cut to the quick, the King James says. They were convicted. Do we share the Gospel in such a way that people are convicted? I mean, think about the canned approaches to evangelism in our day. You go up to somebody and says, God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Is that going to cut anyone to the quick? No. That isn't going to convict anybody. That's just going to make people think, wow, I'll take it. Sign me up until it gets hard. But the kind of apostolic preaching we see in the New Testament was convicting. So they were pierced to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, now we get to the response. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, the promises, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit. So that's the promise. You'll be justified, forgiven, and receive the Holy Spirit. Now go to Acts chapter 3. Acts 3. And I want to start reading in verse 11. In the first ten verses, there's a miracle that happens. Peter and John are in Jerusalem at the temple. A poor beggar comes up to them and asks for money. But what does Peter give them instead? He heals them, right? This lame man is unable to walk. And because he's clinging to Peter and John, the crowds come flocking because they know this guy used to be lame. How did he get up and walk? Well, it had to have something to do with the apostles. So Peter uses that as an opportunity to preach the Gospel. Verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety we made him walk. Notice how Peter's pointing away from himself. Pointing to Christ. Who else did? Is there another preacher in the New Testament that did that? That pointed away from himself to Christ? Paul did that. John the Baptist. What did he say? I must decrease. He must increase. Right? John would point away from himself and point to Christ. That's what Peter does here. Verse 13. Remember the outline I gave you, right? What is the outline? Point one is... God, watch this, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's where he begins. God. 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God of Israel, has glorified His servant Jesus. Same thing as back in Acts 2, God in Christ. It's glorified the servant Jesus. The one, watch this, whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. What's that? Sin. The law. You rejected Messiah. You're guilty. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and put to death the prince of life, or literally the author of life. Jesus is God. And then go down to verse, verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. So what's the Gospel calling in? Repent. Over and over again. Consistently. Repent. Repent and return so that what your sins may be wiped away. There's the promise. You'll be forgiven. And times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 22, he kind of already moves into the warnings. Here's the warning. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet, like me from your brethren, to whom you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Who is the prophet that Moses spoke about? Moses said, The Lord Jesus. And what's going to happen to all those who don't give heed to that prophet? Going to hell. They're going to be destroyed. There's a gospel warning. You know, it's not popular in common evangelicalism to tell people about hell. We don't talk about hell. We don't talk about judgment. We don't talk about God's wrath. But if we're going to be faithful evangelists for our Lord, we have to do that. We have to warn them. Now go to Acts chapter Acts chapter 10. What we're considering right now is what theologians call the kerygma. Uh, you see, a, k, a, k, a kerux is a preacher. Keruso means to proclaim. And the kerygma is the message that the kerux proclaims. So they call, throughout the book of Acts, this, these sermons, as we continue to see the same content, the same material, they call it the kerygma. This is the apostolic proclamation. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34. So far, we've seen Peter preach to Jews. Now he's going to preach to Gentiles. Verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God... Where does Peter start again? God. That God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. So he begins with the character of God. Verse 36. The word which He sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Yet again, there's an emphasis on the Lordship of Christ. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. Verse 39, We are witnesses. Right? So yet again, Peter emphasizes the eyewitness testimony to the Gospel. We are witnesses of all the things He did both in the land of the Jews, and so on and so on. And then at the end of verse 39, they put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. Death 
resurrection. Verse 40, God raised Him from the dead. Verse 43, all the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives what? The forgiveness of sins. So we see the same stuff over and over again. The same message, the same Gospel. It's, it's consistent. We are to preach the apostolic message. God, man, Christ responds, promises, and warnings. And then there are other chapters that show us this. Acts 14, we have Peter preaching to Gentile... Paul, sorry. Acts 17, Paul preaching to another group of Gentiles. And the message is always the same. Go to Acts 14. Look at verse... Go to verse 14. Acts 14, verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, that is, the people were trying to offer a sacrifice to them because they had done a miracle. The pagans thought they were gods. And that's going to change very quickly, by the way. The apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the Gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice that. When Peter's preaching to the Jews, he says the God of what? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel. When he's preaching to the Gentiles, it's the God of creation. The God you know through creation. Same God, just a different perspective of these pagans. And all the same things there. You're an idolater. You need to repent. You need to turn to the true and living God. Right? Same thing in Acts 17. So the promise then is forgiveness, justification, and the Holy Spirit. And the message is always repent and believe in Christ. But now let's get to the warning. There's two warnings that we have to issue. Or, to put it another way, there are warnings to be issued to two categories of people. We need to warn the unbeliever, but we even need to warn the professing believer, the one who claims to be a Christian. So what is the warning to the unbeliever? If someone rejects the Gospel, what do we tell them? If you reject Christ, what's the warning? You're going to hell. Going to hell, right? You're going to be damned. John chapter 3, we know verse 16, right? Whoever believes in Him has eternal life. But how does that passage go on to end? What does Jesus go on to say? If you do not believe, you're what? Condemned already. You're already condemned. If you do not believe in Jesus... You're condemned. Then in John 3.36, John the Baptist says this. He says, He who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. That's the warning. That if you are not a Christian, if you do not repent and believe, at this moment God's wrath is set against you. At every moment, of every day, every second, the judgment of God is upon you. And will be for all eternity if you die in your sin. That's the warning to the unbeliever. That's what Jesus said in Luke 13.3, right? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus preached harsh things, didn't He? If you want to, you want to deal with uh, these people who come by and say things like, you know, stop judging. Won't you just be all loving like Jesus? You want to deal with that effectively? Ask them why the world hated Jesus. Most of the time they'll say, I don't know. Or maybe they'll say things like, because... He loved people. 
Is that why they killed Jesus? Because he loved everybody? No, you usually don't get killed for singing Barney and hugging people. You get killed when you do what Jesus said in John 7, 7. The world hates me because I testify that their deeds are evil. Right? Now that's why they killed Jesus, because he, he exposes darkness. He confronts sin. He tells us if we don't believe in Him, we're damned. He preaches exclusivity. That'll get you persecuted. So the warning to the unbeliever then is that Christ is the only way. If you reject Jesus, there is no hope for you. But then finally, there's a warning that must be issued to what I'm calling the false convert. The false convert. Is everyone who professes to be in Christ really in Christ? No. No. Is everyone who does everyone who think they're going to heaven are they really going to heaven? No. Is everyone who's in our local churches going to end up in the kingdom of heaven? No. No. Right? There are going to be many people who say they're Christians, who go to church, who read their Bibles, and go to hell. Go to Matthew seven. Matthew chapter 7. So here's my recommendation. When you share the gospel with an unbeliever, what I often do is, is I go through the law with them. I'll usually start my conversation like this. I'll give them a track, ask them how they're doing, and then ask them if I can ask them a few questions. And if they say, yeah, my first question then is, what do you think happens to someone after they die? And then usually they'll say things like, well, we go to heaven, or whatever. And you know, if I get through the Gospel, talk about the law, you're a liar, a thief, Jesus died to forgive sinners, you need to repent and believe. If they seem like they're agreeing with the message and they want to repent and believe, the first thing I do is I emphasize the cost of following Jesus. I, I try to do what Jesus did. I try to get them not to follow Jesus. Because true believers are going to follow Jesus no matter the cost, and so I want to set it high. I want, to, I want them to know what the standard really is. So I'll tell them things like, I'm talking about losing your life. I'm talking about giving up everything. Are you sure that's what you want? And then I'll warn them that if you say you're a Christian and you leave here today and your life doesn't change and you continue to live the same old way, you're not saved. What we did here is a waste of time. You went through the motions. You're still unconverted. You're still headed for hell. You need to examine yourself. And the reason I say that is because of this passage right here. Look at Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says they're saved is really saved. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. How do you know you're saved? Doing the will of the Father, the will of God. <coughs> what is the will of God? To go out and evangelize and That's part of it. Follow Him, do evangelism, believe in Christ. Obey His commandments, etc., etc., etc. So it's not a question of do you intellectually agree with these gospel facts? Because you can have all the right theology and go to hell. And hell's hotter for the one who knew the truth than it is for the one who didn't. Jesus says that the religious hypocrites are going to receive greater condemnation. The one who knew the Master's will will receive more lashes than the one who didn't. There's severer judgment. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? We could substitute this with 
modern lingo, common vernacular. Lord, did we not go to Sunday school in Your name? Did we not ask You into our hearts? Did we not go to vacation Bible school in Your name? Verse 23. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, You who practice law. That is the sober warning that we must issue to the professing Christian. So if I have a conversation and the person professes faith in Jesus, I tell them, I got this from a good preacher named Al Baker, I tell them that they're hopeful converts. Hopeful converts. Only time will tell if you're the real thing. Because you'll begin to see fruit. You'll begin to see your life transformed. And it just so turns out that in the sermon this morning, and as we begin a study of 1 John, we're going to see a series of tests by which we can determine if we're real Christians or not. So I'll save that for later. But quickly, go to Acts chapter 8. Now, to close... I want to give you an illustration of a false convert. We all know who's really the epitome of a false convert, of an apostate, right? When you think of a defector, when you think of a false Christian, a false disciple, who's the first one that comes to your mind? Who? Satan. Satan Satan definitely believes the truth about God and is not... But but as someone who actually claimed to follow Jesus and then... Judas, right? Judas, he's... Just the the stereotypical false convert. But there's one in the book of Acts that I don't think a lot of us know about often. And I think this is a powerful passage that really emphasizes the necessity of real repentance. Acts chapter 8. The story here is that Philip is in Samaria preaching the Gospel. And there's a man there by the name of Simon the Sorcerer. Simon the Magician. And he had been doing magic. I don't know if it was literal magic by demonic power or if it was magic tricks. If it was tricks, he must have been really good at it. Because these people said he's the great power of God. And he loved it. He was eating it. He was taking it in. He was a prideful man. Philip comes onto the scene, preaches the Gospel, people are saved and baptized, and guess what? Simon starts to lose his following. So verse 12 says this, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. I want you to watch this. Did Simon believe the gospel? Yes. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, now wait a minute, Simon believed and he was baptized. That's more than many professing Christians in our culture. He was baptized. And he continued on with Philip. Here's a guy that seems very committed. He believes, he's baptized, and he follows after Philip. But notice the end of that verse, verse 13. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. What do you think drew Simon in to follow after Philip? The healing he did and the... um, Like the... Magic, I guess you could The miracles. The, the magic. The miracles. The power. I think that we could see Simon as the first charismatic. Someone who comes to Jesus for the, the miracles. For the, the mystical side of things. The spiritual aspect of seeing these crazy things take place. I mean, Simon's witnessed this and he's like, wow! Man, I can't do that. I need to follow after Philip. Now go down to verse... 18. We start to learn about the real character of this man. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now he's starting to come out of the closet here. Verse 19, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon's like, I want my man, I want that kind of magic. I'll even pay for it. I'll buy it. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Notice the marks, or at least the indications in the passage that he was a false convert. He says, May your silver perish with you. Do true believers perish? No, John 3.16. Whoever believes in Him has eternal life and will not perish. Right? But Peter says, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Can it be said of a true Christian that their heart's not right with God? No, true Christians are right with God, justified by faith, reconciled to God. Look at verse 23. I see that you're in the gall of bitterness under the bondage of iniquity. In other words, you're enslaved to sin. Are true Christians enslaved to sin? No. Was Simon a true Christian? No. He believed, he was baptized, but he wasn't the real thing. What did Simon lack? Verse 20, 22, Peter preached him repentance. I skipped that on purpose. Good job. Go back to verse 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. That's what he lacked. He had intellectually believed. I mean, he couldn't help to. I mean, the miracles were overwhelming. He had been baptized, he had followed Philip, but he never repented. He did not come to Christ in repentant faith. He came to Christ for the miracles. He came for the wrong reason. And if that's why we come, if we come to Jesus for the miracles, if we come to Jesus simply to get out of hell free, that's the only reason for which we come to Jesus, that's not true conversion. True conversion, as we talked about last week, is a sorrow for sin, a hatred for sin, and a turning from sin to Christ because we love Him and want Him. True conversion is not coming to Jesus merely for what you can get out of Him, but because you want Him. You want Christ. The question we should ask ourselves and those to whom we preach is simply this. Do you really love Christ? Is that why you're a Christian? Think of a Spurgeon who said, Heaven is wherever Christ is. Heaven isn't even heaven if Christ isn't there. Heaven is where the Savior is. That's what the Christian wants. He wants the Savior. He wants Christ. Simon didn't want Christ. Simon wanted the magic. He wanted the power. He wanted the extraordinary. He wanted a following. And therefore, he wasn't a believer. The end of verse 22, Repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. He was unforgiven. And then one more indication that he was a false convert is in verse 24. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He wasn't even willing to pray himself for forgiveness. You see, when someone's converted, you don't have to lead them in a sinner's prayer and get them to repeat after you. They're going to want to pray out of the longing of their heart. They're going to call upon the name of the Lord. I think Ray Comfort put it this way. He says, if, you know, if a man cheated on his wife, he wouldn't, the wife wouldn't want someone to come with a script and him to repeat after the other person. Dear wife, dear wife, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's not genuine sorrow. Genuine sorrow is going to be the outpouring of his heart. He's really sorrowful. He doesn't need someone to tell him what to say. 
and that is the way it is with a repentant sinner. He doesn't need to be led into sinner's prayer. The Spirit of God in his heart will cause him to cry out in faith for forgiveness. So Peter, or Simon, was a false convert. So that's the gospel that we preach. God is good. We are not. We've broken His law. We are guilty. God cannot sweep sin under the rug. He must punish it. Jesus is the substitute whose life satisfied the law, whose death satisfied wrath, and now we need to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sin. And the warning is if we do not repent and if we do not believe, we will die in our sin and go to hell. And even if we profess faith in Jesus, but if our life has not been changed, we have no reason to believe we're really converted. That's an outline of truths to present to the unbeliever. Now next week, I'll kind of cap this evangelism study off with a practical lesson. Just kind of show you how I talk to people. Uh, I might even print out some uh, role play conversations for you to read yourself. And uh, then I might even take some question and answers. And we'll deal with some difficult questions that uh, might come up in a gospel conversation. Any final thoughts, questions, or comments on what we've studied this morning? Well, let us be faithful to preach this gospel in hopes that God will use us for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that You have saved us by grace, that You've made us ministers of reconciliation, that You've given us a glorious gospel to proclaim, and You've given us Your Word which clarifies for us exactly what it is we are to say. And we're thankful for that. Make us faithful. Use Christ as King Baptist Church to reach this city and world for our Savior. And it's for His glory we pray. Amen.